0: This morning, we are starting a new series. It's a summer series. It's going to take us through August, and it's called Overflow. Usually for series, we have a chance to really dive into a topic or a book of the Bible or a few scripture passages, and Overflow is a chance to kind of zoom out a little bit. If you've ever made bread, you know that you have to spend time kneading the bread and pressing it down, but then you also have to spend time... Letting the Bread Expand, and this is how I imagine a series like this. Every Sunday, we're going to allow whoever's preaching just to preach whatever they feel like God is putting on their heart that week, and for uh, the Victory Point family, whatever's going on in our lives together. So this morning, I'm going to share a story that's been coming out of my life. Um, Next week, for example, Matt's going to come back and preach out of the overflow of what he's been learning in Israel. So I'm really excited for that, and then week after week, we're going to be able to kind of let things expand and see what God is saying to us as a community. So that's overflow—the idea that um, the Holy Spirit is within us and is overflowing things all the time. And we're hoping to just give out of the overflow of what God is doing in this place. The conversations we have with you, the conversations we have with Jesus. So um, that's what today is about. So today we're going to be looking at a scripture passage that has been coming up at bedtime. I put uh, my daughters to. We have a lengthy bedtime routine, probably way longer than it ought to be. And so we do bath time, and then we do, you know, brushing our teeth, and, you know, putting our PJs, and reading stories, and then telling stories. And um, for telling the stories, Jane has been asking, my oldest daughter has been asking for Jesus stories. So I've been telling her different Jesus stories, and this is one of the stories that came up. And as I told it to her in three-year-old language, I realized that this story was resonating with me, and I decided this would be a great passage to look at together as a church because um, there are a lot of connections I was finding with it. So I've been just meditating on that story for a while, and it is um, it's, it's in a, I want to share with you the context of this story before I share the story. Jesus, this is in the middle of Luke, and Jesus is at a dinner or at a meal with, uh, it says, uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law. And in our present day, that would be like pastor's, It would be like pastors and teachers, seminary professors, denominational folks. They're all sitting around a table. I'm imagining like a nice tablecloth and maybe some refreshments on the table and the reclining. And Jesus is teaching. And he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's teaching about discipleship. And as he's teaching, some people start coming in. I'm I'm imagining maybe someone out in the street heard him talking. was like, oh, Jesus is inside. I'm going to go and join the dinner. And so they go inside and then maybe a few other people come in. Pretty soon the room is starting to fill up and it starts to get full. And not with your everyday average person. These are tax collectors and sinners. In our day these would be like homeless people, prostitutes, people who smell bad or don't look the way we look, maybe don't, you know, talk the way we talk. And they're filling up the room. And I just imagine the pastors and teachers getting really uncomfortable with this. Here we are having this nice meal with a you know, rise, rising star in the Jewish you know, synagogues. And now all this riffraff starts drifting in. They're loud and they're smelly and they're noisy and they're making comments. And so one of the Pharisees says under his breath, look at Jesus, he hangs out with these, these people. He actually says, um, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in response, Jesus tells some stories. And one of these stories I'm going to read right now. This is out of Luke 15, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. So I encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along with me, or they will be, they'll be on the screen. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, The younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, About a month and a half ago, I had come back from a long trip. I'd been gone, and Rachel had been taking care of both girls and getting like four hours of sleep a night. And it was a Friday afternoon, and Rachel wanted to take a nap, understandably. So she said, hey, here's Grace, our youngest. Why don't you hold her for a little bit? I'm going to go take a nap. Jane is in quiet time. Jane does not take naps anymore, okay? Not a happy thing. But she is not taking naps anymore. She's three and a half, and she just plays in a room by herself for an hour or so. And so I went downstairs, and I had Grace on my chest, and I was sitting in a Lazy Boy, and I just fell asleep. She fell asleep on my chest, and I'm like, oh, no, here it goes. I was totally gone for about an hour until I felt a tap on my knee, and it was Jane up from her quiet time. She said, is my quiet time done? And I looked at the clock. I said, yeah, quiet time's done, but Grace is still sleeping, so why don't you just play quietly on the floor? And so she starts playing quietly on the floor, and i'm watching her and i swear i just blinked it was just i closed my eyes for just a second and i look up and she's gone and i look at the clock and an hour has passed since i had told her to play in front of me and i'm thinking rachel's upstairs napping she's asleep i just fell asleep and jane has been by herself for an hour who knows what she's gotten herself into so I look around the room and I can't find her, but I hear footsteps upstairs. I was like, oh, she went back up to her room to go play with her toys. So I go upstairs and the footsteps I had heard were not Jane's, they're Rachel's coming out from her nap. And she said, hey, where's Jane? And I said, I was about to ask you the same question. She's like, she's, she's not upstairs. So we went and looked upstairs and all the closets and all the bedrooms stuff. And then I went back downstairs and I can't find her. She's not in the bathroom. I go down to the basement, thinking maybe she went down to the basement where all my, like, tools are and stuff. I'm like, that's not really a great place for a three-year-old to be playing for an hour. Then I go out to the backyard. I can't find her. Rachel goes out to the front yard, and I'm starting to freak out, okay? Like, my blood pressure is rising really, really fast. And I start calling her name. I'm like, try to call quietly at first. Like, I don't want to just let the neighbors know that I've lost my child, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I'm like, Jane, Jane. Pretty soon I'm like screaming it. I don't care. I'm running around the house trying to find her. Rachel goes to the neighbor's house, barges the door open, doesn't even knock, and runs in there and says, have you seen Jane? She says, no. And she just hands her Grace and just runs back to our house. So Grace is over at the neighbor's house. She comes back. We're running around the house. I feel like I'm going insane. Like this this is a nightmare. I'm stuck in a nightmare right now. And I'm just starting to imagine the worst. Like my daughter has gone out into the street or someone has taken her or she rode her bike to some other place and I don't know where she is. She doesn't know how to get home. I'm freaking out until I look in her playhouse and I see her hair like underneath a blanket. So I run over there, I pull the blanket back and she's just wide eyes open, just staring at me, freaked out. Because I've been screaming her name, you know, for the past five minutes or so. And um, I just grab her, Jane. You're okay. Oh my gosh, you're okay. You're back. I'm like I found you. And I and uh, I said, Rachel, I found her. And she's like, she's like, is she okay? I'm like, yes, yeah, she's okay. She's okay. And I just couldn't let go of her. I was like, oh, I'm so glad that I found you. That's the heart of the father in this story. His son comes back. And he says, ah, you came back. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy. I thought I had lost you. I thought I'd lost you forever. And you're back, holding on to you. I love reading this story because I love witnessing the joy of the father at a child who's returned back into his house. I I thought I had lost you. And that joy of the father is so um, attractive to me. And I, I think that joy comes from a sense of the father's patience. So you notice how easily he lets his son go. He just goes, the son takes all his money and just leaves. and Not all his money, half his money. Takes half his money and leaves. And the father just waits. And then when the son comes back, he's free to just receive the son back. As freely as he let him go, he, he receives him back. And I say the father is patient, not because I think of the father like sitting back on his couch, tapping his foot waiting for his son to get what's coming to him or planning the next teachable moment, right, as fathers do. Okay, when he comes back, here's what I'm going to tell him or here's the consequences that's going to come to him. But right before telling this story, Jesus tells two other stories. One is about a shepherd who has 100 sheep and loses one. And instead of just staying with the 99, he goes out searches high and low for the sheep. Tertullian is an early theologian, early theologian of the church, and he says it's the patience of the shepherd that endures the labor of the quest. If the shepherd was impatient, he would have just said, whatever, it's just one more sheep. I don't have time to go look for one sheep. But the shepherd does go and look, and he finds the sheep, and he grabs a sheep and it says the shepherd rejoices just like the father rejoices every time one sinner repents. And then he tells another story of a woman who has a dowry, which is a set of coins that was her only life insurance policy, basically. And she loses them. And when she loses them, she scours the house for these coins until she finds them. And when she finds them, she rejoices just like the father rejoices every time a sinner repents. And so I'm imagining this father Oh, I was going to show you a picture here. Imagine this father standing on his back porch. When I was in Israel, I was standing in the Sea of Galilee, and our teacher said, this is the location, or this is about the region where Jesus would have told the parable of the prodigal son. And by the way, prodigal son, prodigal means just recklessly spending. Recklessly spending. And it's actually more of a story about the prodigal father, right? Right? the father that recklessly spends his love and compassion on the son over and above what the son has done. But he's telling us his story, and he said, um, the context matters. So if he's standing on the Sea of Galilee, and he's telling this story, this is presumably about a father who lives around this area. And when he talks about the far-off land, across the Sea of Galilee, no more than seven miles away or so, is the Decapolis, the Gentile region, And it's a series of mountains that are right up against the Sea of Galilee. And all these um, cities, these Greek cities are up on the top of these hills. And you can see the lights of the cities at night. And so can you imagine the father whose son has run off to the Decapolis for wild living on his back porch at night, looking out over the Sea of Galilee at these lights, city lights, wondering where his son is and when his son is going to come home just patiently and painstakingly harboring compassion and grace and love for his son to come home and he longs for his son to come home he actually in this story he longs for both sons to come home doesn't he so the first son is the son that that says i wish that you were dead dad i know that when when you die i'm going to get your inheritance and so I want that now, actually. You're dead to me. Give me your money. I want to take it and leave. And he would have known that if he had stayed around, he would have been heir to the estate and not just gotten that portion of money, but whatever that would have grown into over the time that he would have inherited it. And so he says, I don't want that. I don't want your inheritance. I just want my share right now. I'm going to buy out. And I want to, I don't want to be part of this family anymore. And he leaves. He spends his money recklessly on all kinds of things. And he... And actually, he he spends it all. And there's a famine. And he ends up uh, needing to work at a pig farm. For Jewish people, this was like disowning. Not just his family now, but his entire religion. Because pigs were the most uh, desecrated animal, dirty animal that they could have been around. He can't eat pigs. He can't touch pigs. But here he is feeding pigs. And there's a moment where he comes to his senses. He realizes where he is in location to his family, from where he came from. And he realizes, this is not what I was made for. This is not the life that I wanted to live. So not only does he realize where he is, but he turns around and he goes back to his father's house, preparing just to be a servant. Little did he know he'd be welcomed, not as a servant, but as an heir again. That's when he puts the ring on his finger and a robe around his shoulders. What the father is doing is he's saying, you are now an heir again. You're no longer just a son who abandoned me. You are now an heir. So he comes back expecting to be a servant of his father, but now being restored as an heir. But then you also have the older son, don't you, who's standing out in the fields, working. It's working. And the father comes out to him and says, "Come, come into the party, come back home. I want you to turn around, come back home." And the son refuses. And not only does he refuse, he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. You hear that similarity between what the son was expecting and what the older son sees himself as, his identity? His identity is, I have been working day and night for you. You are a slave driver, and you haven't given me anything. This entitlement attitude of, I've earned everything I've gotten, and you haven't given me what I deserve. Repentance is needed for both sons. And what do I mean by repentance? I mean realizing where we are and turning around and coming back home. Coming back home. The father longs for the older son to join the party. That The party of the father is about the redeemed, the forgiven, the reconciled. And we're going to just lavish our grace and our love on these people. And the, younger, the older son is outside and isn't willing to enter in. And the father says, repent, come home, enter into the party and celebrate. Let go of your reputation, let go of your shame, whatever it is that's holding you back, and come in. Understandable though, right, the, the older son? I mean, it's really unfair what the father is doing. It's unfair to welcome back a son after he's disgraced the family and brought shame upon their family from the whole community. Everyone would have known this. But the father longs for repentance of his son repentance. I was actually um, at a coffee shop this week and I overheard a conversation about solar panels. And this guy was talking about how he installed solar panels on, not on the top of his roof because you can't get up there to clean it or adjust them or, or anything like that. He had installed solar panels on the ground so that he could uh, turn them. Whenever it was a different season, he could move the solar panel a little bit so it would hit the sun even better. And he could also clean it off. He was able to you know, clean the solar panels so they were more efficient. And it became an image for me about what repentance is, is uh, a turning towards towards Jesus of uh, constantly, it's when we think of re- repentance as like um, confession, being sorry for my sins, which can be part of repentance. But repentance in itself is actually the word metanoia, which means to turn around, to change your mind, to turn yourself back to Jesus. Um, there is a, uh, so there's a story about a cattle rancher, an American cattle rancher who goes out to Australia, and the cattle rancher visits his friend who's also a cattle rancher, and he goes to his farm and he says, I notice all your cattle are out there, but I don't see any fences. How do you keep your cattle around? Like, how do you keep them from wandering off? And he said, uh, "I'm not going to try to do an Australian accent." But he said could uh, I might. Uh, he said, um, "I don't have fences because in the Australian outback, it's a desert. All I have to do is create a really strong well. I have to create a good well, and then my cattle know where their life source is. They know where the water is. They don't. They don't wander too far before they turn around and come back. These are repentant cows." Okay. <laughs> These are repentant cows who, who may wander, but then just like the prodigal son have a awareness moment, I'm too far from water now to survive. I need to head back, head back home. And that's the heart of the father that, that we would that those who are wandering would actually come back and get the water we need. Um there is a usually we think of the Christian life with fences. We think of it as fences, as these are the things that I believe, and these are the ways that I act, and so I'm kind of in. And we usually imagine repentance as the one-time deal where we get into the fence, that we repent and we confess and we say, Jesus, will you be my Lord and Savior? And we come into the fence, and now we're part of the Christian club. And within the Christian club, there's not a whole lot of talk about repentance because we've already been baptized. We've already been initiated into the community Um, There's no need to turn around to change our behavior, to change our direction of our hearts. Um, We are already in. So there's this kind of fence of who's in and who's out. These people behave this way, and so they're outside of our our group. And these people behave this way, like a Christian. And they are good Christians who are within this fence. But Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the living water who calls us to turn towards him. And it's a different way of thinking about this. I mean, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, right? My sheep hear my voice. And that's the image of you've got a bunch of sheep and goats all in this pasture, and there are multiple shepherds, and all of their sheep are all together. And when Jesus calls out, when the shepherd calls out and he says, sheep, come to me, they know the sound of his voice and they come. In the same way, Christians are those who know the sound of their Savior's voice, who know who Jesus is and who have centered their lives around him and who are returning, who have turned their whole lives towards Jesus and are coming back home, just like the prodigal son turns around and comes back home, just like the father wants the older son to turn around and come back home. There's this uh, missionary named Paul Hybert, and he was a missionary to the Papaya people, who are an indigenous people, and as he was uh, sharing the gospel with them, he was realizing that they did not fit within the fences that he was used to. Their word for God was not the same word for God that he had. They were illiterate, so they couldn't read the Bible. The only theology they really knew was from the few songs that they had memorized. And so he was like, I'm trying to share Jesus with these people and to make sure that they've become Christians. You know, how do I know that they've actually been Christians if I can't check off... The same boxes that I'm used to checking off of, this is what a Christian looks like. And so he spent time trying to figure this out. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he says this. The critical question is, to whom does the person offer their worship and allegiance? This would be judged in part by the direction a person faces and moves. A Christian has Christ as their God. Christ is their center if they move towards Christ if they seek to know and follow after Christ. From the nature of the centered set, that's the idea that the whole well idea, that's a centered set, is that, that's what it's at the center that's defining. From the nature of the centered set, it should be clear that it is possible that there are those near the center who know a great deal about Christ, theology, and the church, but who are moving away from the center. These are the Pharisees. On the other hand, there are those who are at a distance, who know little about Christ, but they may be Christians for they have made Christ their Lord. He is the center around which their life revolves. And so he came up with a picture like this. You have, on one hand, the bounded set, that's the fences. Here's a people who are described by their practices, by their beliefs, that they fit the mold of a Christian and they are bounded, right? It's a bounded set. And what uh, Paul Hybert is saying is that there's another way of looking at it, that, uh, that there's a centered set way of looking at it, that Jesus is at the center, and that those who turn their lives and orient themselves towards Jesus and following after him, whether they're close to Jesus in behavior and actions or whether they're far away from Jesus, they are making their way towards the center of Jesus. At the center of the life is Jesus. And they're making their way towards the center. So my question is, where are you on this map? On the on the right hand side. Where where are you? This is the the question of can we come to our senses right now in this room? Can we come to our senses just like the the younger son does of realizing where we are? Are are you at at the farthest ends? Or are you close? And which direction are you facing? Because repentance really looks different for everybody. Wherever you are right now, today, repentance looks different. Now, there's this passage from Luke 3, 7-14 I want to read. It's got some harsh language in it, but I think it has a lot to say to us this morning about repentance. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vibers, vipers, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Repentance looks different for everyone. For someone who maybe is hitting rock bottom right now, Maybe you're in a place where you're like, I am realizing that my life is a mess. That I've got myself into a mess. And I don't like the way my life is. Most of the time, we kind of run through our lives kind of numb, not realizing what our life is. And to have a come to our senses moment where we go, where am I actually at right now? To come to our senses and to turn back home and just like the younger son, humble himself say like, I am not worthy to be called your son and to let God shower us with his compassion and with his love and to restore our identity. It's what we need. So some of us this morning might, you know, identify a little bit more with the younger son and we need to, there's been things in our lives, there's been addictions or, or struggles or relationship issues, whatever it is that we realize that have just become chains, have that become burdens on our lives, that have become uh, unhealthy or toxic in our lives, and we need to repent of those things and turn back to God and to let him clean us off, to let him readjust our lives, to let him heal us, whatever that looks like, to let him restore us. But some of us might identify more with the older son this morning. For me, that's probably more where this story hits me. I've been a Christian my whole life. My dad is a pastor. And most of my life, I've been trying really, really hard to be a good Christian, to be a good person, to be a good husband, to be a good father, to be a good friend. And when, when that becomes part of my motivating factor in life, I realize that I've, I've I kind of built up some, self, some pride, a, a sense of um, self-righteousness. A few years ago, I, I lived in this town where there, were, uh, there was a homeless population. And there was a ministry called Philabelly, which was uh, a ministry that provided meals for homeless people on Tuesday nights. And for a long time, I'd heard of people going to this, and I didn't really want to go because I always had other things to do or things I wanted to be focused on instead of that. And it honestly, it felt a little bit scary to go and sit and have dinner with people that I didn't know who had different lives than me But one night I went and I, um, when I went there, they encouraged us, don't like, as the non-homeless person, don't go stand behind the table and be the one serving the food. Why don't you stand in line with them and just get food just like them and sit down with someone you don't know and talk with them, Have have a conversation. So I got my food and I sat down and I sat down next to a man who was homeless and we talked a little bit and... That was going great until a youth group came up. They pulled up. They were late, but they came up and they all had like matching shirts and they were all super excited to be there. And they pull up and they start serving food and they start eating food and they come and they sit down at these tables eager to start conversations with people who are homeless. And they sit down across from me and this other man, and as they're talking to me, I realize they think that I am homeless. <laughs> they think I'm homeless. And I immediately thought, I'm going to have to say something clarifying like, oh yeah, I work at this place, or oh, I live just down the street, or something like that. And then I stopped, and I realized, why do I feel like I have to distinguish myself from this person sitting next to me? Why is that so important? What difference does it make? And so for that night, I just accepted it. I I accepted it. I thought, they're seeing me as a homeless person, and that is perfectly okay. Okay. Does that mean that I have any less dignity as a person? Absolutely not. And so that was a huge conviction moment for me. And since then, it's been a constant—I think—moment of a constant word that God has been bringing up with me of of getting rid of my pride and my self righteousness. It's almost like I'm the older son standing outside in the field, going, "I'm a good person. I work at a job. You know, like I, you know, I go to church. I." pray. I read the Bible and it's like the father was turning around and going like, no, come into the party. Come celebrate with the redeemed. Come join it. Join into my my love my rejoicing of the, the sinners who have repented. And that's been a lesson for me. So a couple of weeks ago, actually probably a month ago, when we started talking about meet up and eat up, there was a part of me still that was like, Okay, I'm on staff. I have to go, and I guess I have to sign up for a spot to go you know eat lunch with people okay this is this is my honest okay this is part of not the entire picture, but part of what goes on in my heart is I'm thinking of that, and so I signed up for spots and I went, and I loved it. It was so good for my soul to go and spend time with people, and I'm not trying to say that they are the kind of people I don't deserve to hang out with I'm saying. I had to repent of that. And so repentance looks different for me. I actually have a picture of, um, of uh, Meet Up and Eat Up uh, just hanging out with these people. Chris, is Chris here? No, he's usually sitting over there. Chris, where is he? Anyway, Chris, we, we ended up going into a, a spontaneous soccer game after, after lunch, and Chris was our goalie in his chair. Like, it was like he had a bus parked in front of the goal. And he actually had some great saves. One got past him, I'm like Chris. You have a bus parked in front of the goal. Like, you've got to get everything. But it was awesome. We, we had a great time, and it was so good for my, my soul because repentance uh, looks like different for everybody. When I go into prayer and I go, okay, Lord, I want to confess my sins. There are sins that I want to confess. Some days, I'm like, well, I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> you know, I didn't kill anyone. I didn't scream at anybody. Uh, I guess I'm pretty good. You know? I guess I'm good. God, you are you really have a you're lucky that you have me on board, right? I guess I don't have much to repent for. Does anyone identify with this? Okay, I yes. Okay, I see some nods. Um but repentance for me looks like repentance maybe looks like for the older son, turning around and realizing that I have built up my own self-righteousness to the point where like the Pharisees, I am unwilling to enter into the party. I'm unwilling to identify with people that I see as less than or not good enough or different than me. So what does repentance look like for you? What does it look like for you today to turn your heart towards Jesus? Where are you at? Does it look like the older son who's like a Pharisee who needs to turn his heart back and go. I need to identify with the people I'm not usually comfortable identifying with, and that's hard for me. Or is it like the younger son, where you're like, "Man, my life is a mess, and I need to turn my life towards Jesus because I don't know how much longer, you know, I can go like this." Or somewhere in between, wherever you're the smart. I just want to offer space for us to meet with Jesus right now and to enter into His arms and uh, to to come to our senses. To realize where we are in relationship to Him. So I'm going to invite the band up and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your open arms. Thank you for your patient love that just continually extends grace and mercy and kindness to us. The scripture says it's your your kindness that leads us to repentance thank you that when we come back to you we are always met with open arms always met with a restoration with forgiveness with compassion with mercy your mercies are new every single morning and every single morning we are called to repent now, there's not a day that goes by that we don't need to repent to turn around to say I can't do this anymore. To say, I need you. So we want to take a moment now and to recognize where we are in relation to you. To search our heart. And would you search us, O oh Lord? Search us and know us. And show us where our hearts are pointed, whether they're pointed towards you or pointed towards other things, whether our hearts are filled with our own self-righteousness, or whether they're filled with shame and regret, expose our hearts now as we repent. Father, we are a bunch of messed up, broken people who are covered by your grace. And so we run to you, into your open arms. We turn from our sin, and we return to you. We come home. We ask that you would just heal us and make all things new in our lives, in the life of the world. Let's stand and worship him right now.